Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 12, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Aging bridges, roads, and now patients are included in President Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure proposal. We'll learn how it'll impact home care when William Dombey joins us. CMS released new proposed rules for fiscal year 2022. Stanley Nockamson has details in his legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Finksandek, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. CMS has issued four proposed payment rules under the Biden administration. Among the new proposals, the proposed rule for inpatient psychiatric services and a proposed rule for inpatient rehabilitation facility services. These proposed rules address the administration's goal to achieve health equity for all patients through policy solutions, and both are seeking public comment on those proposals. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let me start with a little information about orthopedic and spine surgery, but not status determination. I think we all know these are costly surgeries because, partially, the cost of the hardware that is implanted is so much. Now, if you talk to the surgeons about their implant choices, it can get pretty heated, and you really can't blame them. Their patient outcomes depend not only on their expertise, but also the suitability of the implant. And there are several companies that make these implants. Now, if you're a hospital supply chain person, that's your biggest nightmare. A bunch of doctors who all want their preferred implant type. This gives you no power at pricing negotiations. Well, one of the common solutions is to put all the doctors in a room and ask or beg or force them to pick one manufacturer and then you guarantee that manufacturer all of your business and you get a good price. But doctors obviously hate this. So the other method is reference pricing. What the hospital does is it sets a price that they think is reasonable and tells every manufacturer that their products can be used as long as they agree to that price. Happy doctors, happy supply chain, happy CFO. And this worked in one public health system that actually reported their data and had a 16% decrease in costs. So as more and more surgeries move to the outpatient setting and reimbursement gets lower, we're going to see more pressure on hospitals to reduce costs. So keep your ears open for reference pricing being discussed. Your hospital's financial success may depend on it. Changing subjects, many of you may have heard that CMS is once again allowing survey agencies to resume in-person hospital surveys. And one of the questions that hospitals asked was whether the hospital could refuse entry to any surveyors who were not vaccinated against COVID. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Why would a hospital let a non-vaccinated, non-caregiver in the facility who's going to wander all over the hospital and even meet with patients when there's vaccines that are readily available? So what did CMS say? Well, they told hospitals they cannot refuse entry to unvaccinated surveyors, and they can't insist that they get a COVID test before coming in the door. And if that's not bad enough, CMS is adding a quality measure to several of the 2022 proposed rules that measures the rate of COVID vaccination of the healthcare personnel in the organization. 
thereby holding these organizations responsible for ensuring that their staff is vaccinated. Now, don't get me wrong. These surveys, surveyors have every right to refuse a 95% effective vaccine for a disease that is highly transmissible, has killed over half a million Americans and over 3,000 healthcare workers. But to force hospitals to allow an unvaccinated person free reign of their facilities and risk the health and safety of every patient and employee makes no sense. Now, no one asked me, but hospitals should have the right to request only vaccinated surveyors or the use of remote technology for the unvaccinated surveyors. Now, with that provocative statement, I'll be off for the next few weeks. So talk to you in May. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ron Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Coming up next, the Monitor Monday RAC Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. The RAC Report is sponsored by Sound Physician Advisory Services. To find out how your hospital compares with others, take their nationwide industry survey by clicking the button on your screen. Add your responses to the study and sign up to get valuable industry insights from hospitals around the country. For more information, visit soundphysicians.com. Here now is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I come with good news and bad news this AM. I have chosen to begin with the good news. The ALJ backlog will soon be no more. Yes, I said that. The four to six year waiting period between the second and third level will by sometime in 2021 be back to 90 days, which is the statutory requirement. What precipitated this drastic improvement? The answer is money. This past year, CMS's budget increased exponentially, mostly due to the Medicare appeals backlog issue. Omaha was given enough dough to hire 70 additional ALJs and to open six additional locations. That brings the number of ALJs ruling over provider Medicare appeals to over 100. Omaha now has the capability to hear and render decisions for approximately 300,000 appeals per year. This number is drastically higher than the number of Medicare appeals being filed. The backlog will soon be non-existent. This is fantastic for all providers because while CMS will continue to recoup the alleged overpayments after the second level, providers will have the case adjudicated by an ALJ much speedier. Now the bad news. Remember when the RAC program was first implemented and the RACs were zealously auditing, which is the reason that the backlog existed in the first place. RACs were given free reign to audit whichever types of service providers they chose to target. And once the backlog was out of hand, CMS started restricting the RACs. They allowed the three-year look-back period when other auditors can go back six years, uh, like the SMERC audit. CMS also mandated that the RACs slow down their number of audits and put other restrictions on RACs. Now that Omaha has the capability to adjudicate 300,000 Medicare appeals per year, expect that those reins that have been holding the RACs back will, by 2021 or 2022, be fully loosened for a full gallop. Now, switching gears, two of the lesser-known audits that are exclusive to CMS are the Supplemental Medical Review Contractors, the SMERCs and the TPEs. 
exclusivity to CMS just means that Medicare claims are reviewed, not Medicaid. Now, the SMRCs in particular create confusion. We have seen DME SMRC audits on ventilator claims, which are extremely document intensive, as you can imagine, for, especially because ventilators, some people require them many for long periods of time, and there can be 3,000 claim lines for a ventilator claim. These SMERC audits are not extrapolated, but the amount in controversy is still high. SMERCs normally request a document for about 20 to 40 claims. It's a one-time review, and it's post-payment. It doesn't sound that bad until you receive the request for documents of 20 to 40 claims, all of which contain 3,000 claim lines, and you have 45 days to comply. Now, you always can ask for an extension. Lastly, in a rare act, CMS has inquired as whether providers prefer TPE audits or continue with post-payment review audits for the remainder of the pandemic. If you have a strong opinion one way or the other, be sure to contact CMS. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Stanley Nockopson, and William Dombey, who's standing by to report our lead story. It is Monday, it's April the 12th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. From the moment you get a denial until the moment you get a final decision, things you do can increase or decrease your chance of winning. For example, the way you submit the medical record can help or hurt your case. Should you use tabs in your exhibit books? The answer may surprise you. Get practical tips for improving appeals in a new Rack Monitor webcast, led by nationally recognized healthcare attorney David Glazer. David will provide useful legal arguments for responding to denials and proven strategies to best package your appeals, including how to write effective appeal letters and execute smart legal approaches. Register now to attend Building a Better Appeal, Gain Proven Strategies for Improving Letters, Arguments, and Process. It's tomorrow, Tuesday, April 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is the aforementioned David Glazer. And good morning, David. And David, time after time, I keep on asking you, what could be risky this morning? Chuck, a perfect lead-in because today that risk is time. It's time. And I don't mean it's time for tomorrow's webinar. That's not till tomorrow. I don't mean the passage of time or even the fact that during the pandemic, it can be difficult to be oriented to time. Instead, I'm talking about tracking time when an organization like a hospital, a skilled nursing facility, or a home health agency uses a physician as a medical director. There's a widespread belief that there's a legal requirement that the medical director must track his or her time to receive compensation for the work they perform. I've seen hospitals assert that the absence of timesheets creates a per se stark violation, and that is simply wrong. While timesheets can be a useful tool to demonstrate the value of work that's performed, they're not required by law. In fact, the focus on timesheets can obscure the real issue, which is the value of the work that's being done. In fact, I'd assert that the focus on timesheets can cause organizations to mistakenly believe that time is either the best or even the sole method for determining medical director compensation. So it's interesting to compare medical directorships with a wide variety of other jobs. 
it's rare for a professional to be required to track time. As a lawyer, unfortunately, I'm in one of the professions where that obligation exists, and I totally hate it. But when hospitals or SNFs or home health agencies hire professionals, they almost always use a salary. Do you know any healthcare executives who's paid hourly? It's entirely permissible to engage medical directors on that same salaried basis. Now, I'm going to toss out a theory that some would consider heresy. I think flat compensation for a medical directorship may present lower risk than an hourly rate. So during last week's broadcast, I read the jury instruction from the Baptist Medical Center case. And I will acknowledge that's kind of the other end of this coin. It's a situation where the government thought that the annual compensation to a physician exceeded the work that the physician was expected to perform. And an inflated salary is certainly problematic. But it's also possible for a physician to log unnecessary or even fake hours. Just because someone spends time on a project, that doesn't mean the time was necessary or valuable. Imagine that a physician is tasked with developing a review form for the staff in the operating room. If the physician recorded 100 hours on that project, any observer would say that that time was unnecessary. Having a reasonable rate per hour is meaningless if the number of hours spent isn't reasonable. Determining the total value of the service in advance and paying the physician that predetermined amount can wind up being both fairer and safer. Now, for some projects, it's going to be difficult to estimate the work in advance. And in that situation, hourly reimbursement is probably the way to go. And I wouldn't dispute that documentation of the hours can be a useful tool to support the reasonableness of compensation. It's just it's not the only tool. And when you have a particular task in mind, it may be better to develop an estimated value for that project, agree to a flat fee payment, and avoid the administrative hassle that a timesheet creates. I'm confident that Cindy Lopper was not contemplating regulatory issues when she's saying time after time. But she's right. It is easy to get caught up in circles, and confusion is nothing new. But don't worry, if you ever get in trouble because of the lack of a timesheet, I will be waiting. Chuck, it is time, time, after time to turn it back to you. Time after time. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. Time after time. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson of Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And speaking of time, now is the time for the very latest news on the social determinants of health. And here now with our report is Alan Fink Sandwich. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. The date of April 8th is important in my world. Not only is it my beloved grandmother's birthday, for the record, she would have been 121 years of age last week, but also when Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run in Atlanta, breaking Babe Ruth's record. However, for our purposes, the date will now be etched in healthcare history as when the CDC took long-needed action to declare racism a serious public health threat one that directly affects the well-being of far too many persons across the globe. Over this past year, fierce societal narratives have addressed the pandemic, 
social and racial inequities, and how these inequities impact community health and wellness. Longstanding structural barriers have yielded challenges in terms of access to, affordability of, and attainment of necessary health and mental health care across marginalized populations and that span urban, suburban, and rural regions. The American Public Health Association has been on the forefront of the efforts to declare racism the public health crisis it is. Over the past several years, 32 states plus the District of Columbia and over 1,000 counties currently have formal declarations in place. An interactive map lives on the APHA website for those interested in digging deeper. Most of our industry's professional associations have already acknowledged the presence of racism and xenophobia, fiercely condemning them, and mandating action, including the American Academy of Family Physicians, American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, American Nurses Association, National Association of Social Workers, and the Case Management Society of America, to name a few. The CDC's Strategic Action Plan has been applauded by the industry so far and encompasses studying the impact of social determinants on health outcomes, expand evidence on how racism expands, affects health, and propose and implement solutions to address the challenges, leveraging COVID-19 funding to make new and expanded investments in racial and ethnic minority communities and other disproportionately affected communities around the country. There are also strategic efforts to establish a durable infrastructure that will provide both foundation and resources to address disparities specific to COVID-19, as well as other health conditions. The data remains consistent that racial and ethnic minority groups have a far higher incidence of chronic illness, morbidity, and mortality across disease states. Expanding internal agency efforts to foster greater diversity and create inclusive and affirming environments for all. And launching a new web portal, Racism and Health, to serve as a catalyst for public and scientific discourse around racism and health and be accountable for our progress. The CDC's messaging is direct. Now, no formal statement alone will eliminate racism from society, though consistent and strategic actions are an asset. The CDC stance firmly affirms how serious a threat racism is for population health, with ample literature to validate this reality. Access to the full statement appears on the CDC newsroom page. This week's poll asks, how much impact will the CDC's racism declaration have on SDOH funding and reimbursement? No impact? Slight impact? Moderate impact? Too soon to tell. We'll review the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan. That was consultant and author, Alan Frick-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright, his former CMS official turned IT authority, Stanley Nockerson. Stanley joins us now to report on two of the proposed rules released last week by CMS. And good morning, Stanley. Welcome to the broadcast. Morning, Chuck, and everyone on the phone. Uh, CMS has issued its first proposed payment rules under the Biden administration. While these rules are required to update Medicare payment rates for different provider types, they give us insights into the new administration's priorities. On April 7th, CMS announced proposed rules for the fiscal year 2022 payment and quality reporting updates for inpatient psychiatric facilities, 
and for the FY2022 inpatient rehab facility prospective payment system. In addition to the payment updates, CMS is seeking feedback on ways to attain health equity for all patients through policy solutions. This is consistent with the President's executive order on advancing racial equality and support for underserved communities. CMS is working to make healthcare quality more transparent to consumers and providers, enabling them to make better choices, as well as promoting provider accountability around health equity. CMS has already taken some steps to close the health equity gap in inpatient rehab facilities. They adopted standardized patient assessment data elements, or SPADES, which include several social determinants of health. These were finalized in the fiscal year 2020 IRF PPS final rule. CMS is now seeking comment on the possibility of expanding measured development and the collection of other spades that address gaps in health equity in, in, in the inpatient, inpatient rehab facilities. In the proposed rule, CMS is requesting comment on future potential stratification of quality measures by dual eligibility and other social risk factors in facility-specific reports, ways to improve demographic data collection, and the potential creation of a facility equity score to synthesize results across multiple measures and social risk factors. Now, regarding the annual payment updates, total estimated payments to these inpatient rehab facilities are estimated to increase by 2.3% or $90 million in fiscal year 22 relative to payments in fiscal year 2021. For this new fiscal year, CMS is proposing to update PBS payment rates by 2.1%. There are also a number of proposed changes to the IPF quality reporting system, including CMS is proposing to add COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel measures to the quality program. For fiscal year 2024, CMS is proposing to add the follow-up after psychiatric hospitalization measure to the program. In efforts to reduce provider burden, CMS is also proposing to remove three chart abstracted measures from the program for fiscal year 2024 payment determination and subsequent years because the costs associated with these measures outweigh the benefits of continuing to retain them in the quality measure program. These measures are alcohol use brief intervention provided or offered and alcohol use brief intervention tobacco use treatment provider offered and tobacco use treatment, and timely transmission of transmission record uh, discharges from an inpatient facility to home self-care or other site of care. Additionally, CMS is proposing to transition to patient-level reporting for chart-abstracted measures, beginning with voluntary reporting of data for the fiscal year 2023 payment determination and transitioning to patient-level reporting for 2024 and subsequent years. Now, regarding inpatient rehab facilities, CMS is proposing to update the payment rate by 2.2%. And for that quality reporting program, CMS is seeking feedback on future plans to define digital quality measures uh, for the program. CMS is also seeking feedback on the potential use of the FIRE standard uh, for digital quality measures within the program, aligning where possible with other quality programs. CMS is also proposing the adoption of a COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel measure to require inpatient rehab facilities to report COVID vaccinations in their facilities. Now, comments on both these proposed rules and requests for information are due by June 7th. Jack, back to you.
Thanks, Stanley, very much. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockerson. Stanley is the founder of Nockerson Advisors, LLC. And a programming note, you can listen to Stanley Nockerson tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. He's going to continue his Part 2 series on the analysis of these two proposed rules issued by CMS last week. Now, coming up next, some very interesting results from the Monitor Monday listener survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Over the past year, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been quite a challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the deadly pandemic, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now, more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance Webcasts is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive RAC Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at RAC University. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. How much impact will the CDC's racism declaration have on SDOH funding and reimbursement? The majority of you actually picked what I would have picked. Too soon to tell. More than 70% of our listeners felt like, nah, way too soon. About 11% said no impact, 8% said slight impact, and 11.5% said moderate impact. I think until we see some of the action, actionable items and consistent commitment on how this declaration will really play out, we're all going to be watching and waiting. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. And we will be watching and waiting. President Joe Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure proposal includes approximately $400 billion to expand access to home care and community-based services, including access to long-term care provided under Medicaid. Joining us now to report on the impact of this new possible fusion of funds is the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. And good morning, Bill, and welcome back. What are you going to do with all the money if it is approved by Congress? Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for the opportunity to join you today. It was just a few days ago that there was a pleasant surprise. Uh, it was presented by the Biden administration called the American Jobs Plan, which in most note was focused on infrastructure, bridges and roads and the like. It included something for the first time focused on the care infrastructure. And as you mentioned, it is $400 billion for home and community-based services. That represents about a $40 billion a year investment over that plan. And if it finds its way into the Medicaid programs, that would represent nearly a 40% increase in spending on home and community-based services for a single year. But that's where some of the issues develop. We do not have details on what the nature of this $400 billion expenditure may be beyond it being caregiver support and a willingness to open the doors to unionization of home care workers. During the campaign for presidency, uh, then candidate Biden was proposing a $755 billion 
expansion of home and community-based care that focused on both paid and unpaid caregivers, family members predominantly as well. And intending to continue to rebalance long-term care spending towards home and community-based services. This is a very welcome addition to the culture of healthcare coming from the new administration. It is by far the largest expansion in home care supports in many, many years. But the questions uh, that are raised by including it in the infrastructure, infrastructure proposal have triggered a number of political responses, including one from a senator who is questioning whether home care for seniors is a good move within an infrastructure proposal. One would have to recognize politically, though, that opposing supports for seniors with the level of voting that they bring in in every campaign uh, is a bit of a danger for any politician. Now, this proposal comes on the heels of the American Rescue Plan, which added 12 to $13 billion of support for Medicaid home and community-based services over the next 12 months. This happens by way of a 10% federal matching increase to the states. It is time limited and does provide significant flexibility to the state in how it uses the money within a broad variety of Medicaid home and community-based services programs. Many of us in the world of home care are looking to a framework coming from a bill called the Home and Community-Based Services Access Act of 2021. It has not yet been introduced, but is supported by Congresswoman Dingell from Michigan and Senator Hassan from New Hampshire. And it provides for a 100% federally financed long-term care program under Medicaid based in the home care setting. So we're dealing with a lot of questions, but we are very pleased to see that there is attention being paid to home care at one of the most important times in our society as we have an aging population that is going to demand support for long-term care services, and they want that care at home. So we'll be paying very close attention, but not just attention, we and many others will be a voice within the administration advancing the cause of home and community-based services. So Chuck, thanks again for the opportunity to spend some time today and stay with us in the future as we see this grand proposal move forward. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was William Dombey. He is president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. And, Bill, we will be watching that very closely. That is going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Alan McSamney, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Stanley Nockerson, and William Dombey, who reported our lead story this morning. And we're not on the air. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. When you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you for sharing your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.